This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the December edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. This month, our topic is keeping arts and culture alive through COVID-19. In many ways, this month we're building on our November broadcast when we discussed arts and culture as an important industry and economic driver for the state of Connecticut, one that can help with the state's recovery from COVID. The arts and culture industry, like so many other industries, has been devastated by the impact of the pandemic. We at the Cultural Alliance surveyed our members early in the pandemic, and just for the 15 weeks from mid-March to the end of June, 82 of the 100 respondents estimated losses at over $10 million for simply those 15 weeks. And 38 of them estimated that they would need another $8 million, an average of $200,000 each to survive until today. Three months later in September, Connecticut Arts Alliance estimated $386 million in losses for arts and culture across the state. Our headline today is the celebration of the largest investment so far, $9 million in federal CARES Act funding from the state's Coronavirus Relief Fund, awarded by the Connecticut Office of the Arts, November 30th, to 154 performing arts and arts education institutions, 40 of them in our 15-town region of coastal Fairfield County. And while we celebrate that amount and recognize other recent investments by the states using by the state using mostly federal CARES Act funds, we also want to build on our discussion from our November show about what more can be done to first safeguard and then make more of a solid investment in the future of our arts and culture organizations. That November program that you can still hear as a podcast featured four legislators, Senators Huang and Haskell and Representatives Dathan and Rutigliano, who had earlier appeared in a pre-election candidates forum on arts and culture, all of whom expressed personal commitments both to supporting the arts and culture in general and in thinking about ways to assist artists and cultural groups across the state, large and small, in recovering from what has been a really devastating period for everyone. One refrain repeated by many in that forum was that, quote, supporting the arts is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. And let's get this straight. Money supporting arts and culture is an investment, not a handout. As we've said, arts and culture is an important industry in the state, generating $9 billion annually. That's 5% of Connecticut's economy. Our own study as part of the Americans for the Arts National Arts and Economic Prosperity Study back in 2016 showed nonprofit arts and culture institution spending at least $230 million in Fairfield County alone, creating 6,800 FTE jobs and returning $2.5 million in government revenue. So today, 
we want to celebrate the award of $9 million to arts institutions, talk to some recipients of that funding about its impact, uh, what its impact will be on their situation, while asking what more they'll need to see them through to when audiences return, talk to two organizations that were not included in this particular investment, <laughs> and then lastly turn to what more is needed and what is possible to keep arts and culture alive through COVID-19. So with me today is the head of Connecticut Office of the Arts, Elizabeth Shapiro. Welcome, Liz. Morning, David. William Mitchell on the board of Connecticut Humanities. Welcome, William. Senator Tony Huang, Republican of Senate District 28, which covers Fairfield, Eastern, Newtown, and parts of Westport and Weston. Welcome, Senator. Well, thank you very much for having me. Three recipients of this recipient of this recent funding initiative. Um, Angie Durell, Executive Director of Intempo in Stamford, Lawrence Queso, Executive Director of the Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport, and Michael Barker, Managing Director of the Westport Country Playhouse. Welcome to you. Morning, David. And rounding out our guests are Jason Patlis, President and CEO of the Maritime Aquarium at Norwalk, and Kathy Mayer, Executive Director of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport. Welcome to everybody, and thank you so much for joining us today. So I want to start with Liz Shapiro. Liz, you've been at the forefront of dealing with this crisis now for, what, 10 months? Uh, figuring out what the needs are across the state, leading artists and arts organizations to sources of relief funding, even when you haven't been able to directly fund them yourself from the Office of the Arts, and negotiating like crazy to get what you can out to your constituents. So first, of course, congratulations in managing to get $9 million together and distributing it, distributing it to over 150 organizations in the state. So um, let's start off by telling us a little bit about how you did it, <laughs> how it was designed, and what your priorities were in putting together this, this funding uh, package. Uh, well, thank you, David. Um, well, I think that the what is hard to imagine and hard to realize, even for our specific arts constituents, is that as soon as the state of Connecticut was awarded federal CARES dollars, um, all our, our, we went into action. And that action was talking, in our particular case, the Connecticut Office of the Arts is located in the Department of Economic and Community Development. And we have a terrific commissioner, Commissioner David Lehman, who is really supportive of arts and culture in Connecticut. And what's more, he listens. So from the very beginning of this entire um, pandemic, you know, we have been talking about what is needed for the arts and how the arts industry has been suffering. Um, because like so many other industries, um, you know, arts is um, an in-person experience for the most part. We need people in order to do our job. So it has been really a traumatic thing. And, and, and once we... Um, it, it, entered conversations. Really what happened next was was the negotiations. And we didn't get to the point of really being 
in the game, let's just say, for some of this CARES Act funding that came through the state until over the summer um, and when we really started talking about what the needs are. And just the way this all works is there are a lot of competing needs out there. And, and you know, we are the first people to understand that. None of these decisions are easy decisions to make. Plus, you don't know what's coming down the line. So the state has a pot of money, like every other state from the federal government, and has to figure out how to allocate it, yet keep back enough money to handle crises that may be coming down the line. So it's a very tricky, tricky negotiation. Um, I got the call from David in maybe August saying, okay, we're ready to start talking about that. I need this, this, and this. And it was data. And thank goodness we have regional partners who are amazingly responsive. They reached out. They, I reached out. They answered my questions and we were able to pull through up, you know, pull through with up to the minute data so we could determine, you know, what the need was. And then it was, um, went from doing the ask to negotiating to what the final, um, amount of dollars uh, that was received. But what I would like to say is we knew going into this when we publicized this grant that $9 million was not going to be enough. There was never any doubt that this was going to be enough money. Um, and we were aware of that. But $9 million is more money that has come to arts and culture <laughs> in in the memories of anyone working in the Connecticut Office of the Arts. And I have staff who've been there for 30 years. So it's really unprecedented in that way. Right. And of course, it must have been a hard decision. Um, we know that the performing arts uh, really have suffered, um, it's hard to say the most, um, but in terms of um, not being allowed to have audiences, not being allowed to, to open mm -hmm. at any rate. Um, but what went into your decision to, to limit this grant to performing arts institutions and arts education organizations? So this was a carefully negotiated decision, and it really came from the top levels. We have a governor who is incredibly interested in um, understanding everybody's, uh, you know, the issues that all of our organizations are having. And so these were negotiated conversations when we knew we went in with an initial ask that was far greater than $9 million. And that was for the entire arts industry. And the negotiations went, um, well, you're not going to get that much money. This is what you should be thinking about. And what we knew was with the pool of money that um, we were told we had to work with, which was $9 million, um, we needed to make grants that were significant to the organizations that were hurting the most. And so um, the performing arts um, were was sort of top of the list and top of mind. Um, and then um, because we do so much work with arts education, arts educators and organizations that provide arts education were suffering in a very in a very similar way to performing arts organizations. Um, but they didn't quite have the voice of performing arts um, organizations, performing arts at, um, organizations have the tourism component. Right. So they they have a very um, high profile as economic drivers. Arts education organizations are really serving people in the state. They're often serving um, under-resourced communities. And so their work is a quieter quieter work. Um, but we felt really strongly, the staff felt really strongly that they'd be included in this and um, that their path towards reopening was just as difficult as performing arts venues. And Liz, you also um, started um, pretty early in the process. You managed to get 
money to individual artists. Um, was that uh, care money or was that some other um, source that you were no. able to find? That's a great question. So, yes, we did. And it's very complicated. That's the short answer. Um, <laughs> we received a, a, a little over $450,000 through the National Endowment for the Arts. The National Endowment for the Arts received a dedicated pool from the CARES Act. So they, the understanding was that the National Endowment for the Arts would send that money out to all the states and territories. So initially we did um, receive funds from the National Endowment and we were able to distribute um, $350,000, um, a little bit more than that, out to arts organizations in very small grants awards and that's what we decided to do blanket hit as many as possible with small grants um, we were also able to do something called the artist respond grant um, and that was a grant that was funded with sort of what we had not yet spent because it hit us early enough in the fiscal year I, I mean because of covid as soon as march as soon as everything closed in march we sort of put the kaposh on all plans that we had let you know yet to do to accomplish in that time. And so we had a reserve of money. So we were able to create an artist respond grant early on, um, which we were able to deploy. And that was based on funds that were left from our state allocation. And we were also able to create an artist relief grant. And um, that those that idea, we had never done that before, but that idea was really a public private partnership where um, the um, um, our New England Foundation for the Arts wanted to do something for artists. And what they did is they gave $47,000 to each of our five state arts agencies in New England and said, can you get this out to artists? We were able to match that with some funding um, from our state allocation. And we were able to make relief grants to individual artists, which was an unprecedented, unprecedented partnership, public-private partnership for granting for us, but also um, something that we had never done before. Terrific. So this really <laughs> exercised your creativity uh, genes, I think, uh, Liz. I mean, it sounds extraordinary, the, the, the number of different strands that you've been able to bring together uh, so far. Having a lot of different conversations um, and a lot of, you know, Zoom makes these statewide conversations so easy. Mm. Um, so we listened, to, we assessed the need, we figured out how much money we had, and we looked at the regulations that we um, have to abide by in order to get that money out the door as quickly as possible. And are there any other possibilities? Is there anything down the pike that um, that you're working on? Not that you can necessarily tell us the details, but... Well, uh, we know, we know, it. yeah, we know there's a huge need for operating support. And so we are looking towards our regular granting lines next year for operating support. You know, the key thing for people to remember moving forward is that our, our, we get an allocation from the NEA every year because we're a state arts agency. That allocation, we need to match that one to one. So when budget years are tough and um, organizations like the Connecticut Office of the Arts are defunded um, in initial budget proposals, we get back in there and we scrabble to try to make the message that by defunding us, we are losing almost a million dollars of federal money. And so that has always been a successful argument because nobody at the state wants to, you know, leave money on the table, rightly so. Right. Um, this is going to be a challenging budget year, so we haven't planned ahead too much. But what I will say is that um, our state connection 
with private funders in the state of Connecticut and national funders has just grown by leaps and bounds. Frank will probably talk a little bit more about the first um, result of that those that work when he talks about the CHIFA grants uh, that Connecticut Humanities gave out. But um, so we're really looking to leverage public and private funding. And we're also looking to bring in um, and train people in Connecticut and organizations to bring creative people into the process of municipal government and municipal planning. And so while we never will have enough money, I can't imagine to fix everybody's problems. What we can do is bring more creative people to state um, and municipal government. Not that there aren't creative people there yet, but we really believe that by placing creatives into um, leadership positions um, across Connecticut, we'll come up with solutions to some of these problems. That is very interesting, very promising, Liz. Good to hear about that. Oh, let me turn now to Connecticut Humanities. Uh, Frank, you're on the board of Connecticut Humanities and chair the uh, application Review Committee, I, I believe. Yes, uh, that's true. So can you first tell our listeners what can Connecticut Humanities is, how it's set up? It's quite different from the Office of the Arts um, and what organizations you generally support. Yeah, we're a little different, though in some ways we follow the same template. Uh, maybe the easiest parallel is people think of us as the uh, state connection to the NEH. So uh, a chunk of our funding comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and then another chunk comes from our own state tax dollars. Uh, so in what Liz was describing, we have that same challenge. And I am here as a cheerleader for the staff and also kind of to remind the banner headline uh, that we were recently awarded uh, thanks to Liz's uh, good efforts and the governor and Commissioner Lehman and Secretary McCaw, $1.5 million to grant out to state humanities and arts organizations uh, on a really quick turnaround. So. Uh, those applications need to be into us basically by this weekend uh, to send that money out. And it's sort of amazing to be on the call with you guys. So I feel as though over the past nine months, I've been reading applications from pretty much everybody here uh, over and over and over again. So it's nice to see you in person. You look lovely. Uh, so it's been a really unusual year for us. Uh, just as Liz said, uh, in March, we pretty much shut down our traditional uh, grant cycle and committed the money that we had in hand, about $700,000, to regranting just around COVID issues. Uh, we were fortunate because we were able to get some money from the NEH, uh, about $500,000 to add to that pot. So over the course of March through July, August, we pretty much gave out all the money we would give out in a full year in just... Uh, those short months. Uh, and we saw you know, hundreds of applications, I mean, way more. I have to credit the team that does the reviewing. They're all volunteers, uh, and they read so many grants. They read more grants in those months than we read usually in a year. So it was a pretty amazing time. Uh, and we fine-tuned our skills and built muscles we didn't know we had and had some really complicated conversations about What's humanities? Who fits in humanities? What's arts? What's the intersection? How is our work 
multidisciplinary, uh, how are we funding friends that we've known for a long time, but also bringing in new organizations that we haven't uh, been in contact with? And what about our commitments to DEIA and other kinds of equity uh, across the board? And while the board's been having those discussions for strategic planning purposes, we were having those fights around who gets money. And it, it really did push us to think about the ways that we have traditionally worked and how that has to change. And sort of in the middle of that, we wanted to respond to all that was happening in the streets uh, as a result of George Floyd's murder. And so we were seeing organizations we didn't know before doing work that really mattered to us. And we were reminded that during the pandemic, uh, people have been investing in popular humanities. I mean, that when you're sitting at home making TikTok videos based on <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, when you're doing deep TikTok and making buildings fall in love with each other, all that, that's based on humanities. It's sort of playing with culture and stories and patterns that you learned at some point and sort of riffing on them and using critical thinking skills to to bring those things to life in new ways. And so uh, our challenge became even greater as we realized that people were doing this work and we wanted to find ways to increase their connection to organizations that do the work, but to also encourage them to keep doing that uh, in their daily lives. So um, I think certainly um, on both national, regional and local levels, it seems that this period has uh, uh, produced a lot of new thinking um, by uh, funders. Uh, maybe a, a topic for another program, just in terms of how uh, funders, foundations have really evolved and changed and responded to the issues over this over this period. Um, just one, um, we don't have too much time, but I, I did want to pick up this um, theme that Liz brought up about new relationships, especially private partner. Could you mention, could you just talk a little bit about the Chifa relationship? Sure. Yes, thank you, Liz, for that nice lead-in. Uh, in a, a sort of a symbol of our growing relationship with uh, the arts and finding ways to partner across those disciplinary boundaries, Jason and Liz were able together to pull out some money from Chifa, which isn't traditionally a funder of arts or humanities, really, uh, because their focus is so much on building projects and public education. Uh, and it was really a surprise to get the call. Uh, and we worked hard together to find ways to uh, pull in some of that funding to be able to regrant to organizations uh, across the state and a mix of groups that were doing things uh, that were arts or humanities focused and really thinking hard about DEI concerns and sort of what we're doing as a state to amplify that. And so that was an important part of the discussion that we had with folks who were applying. And it was also uh, an important part of our conversation the other day as we thought about uh, how this money uh, comes to us. Uh, and it was a really great conversation. It was really wonderful to be working with partners uh, in the arts and to kind of see the ways that our different uh, patterns and the ways in which we evaluate grants and think about the process uh, could be stretched in dialogue. So we had a really vigorous, rich, challenging conversation. Was it Wednesday, Liz? Yeah, I think it was Wednesday as we were reviewing these uh, grants and thinking about 
what's valued on the art side and then what's valued on the humanity side and how those things come together and converge uh, and sort of how we are all committed to uh, questions of equity and how that's grown over the past three to five years. So it was really great. It was really, it was intellectually stimulating and challenging and it was nice to be able to send money out to organizations and to think about kind of big groups, small groups, groups that are working in community. And I think that's been the biggest challenge over this period. Uh, I also was reviewing some grants for NIFA and thinking about uh, groups that are community-based and working with communities of color in neighborhoods and doing things that may fall off the radar of sort of bigger funders. And how do we compare and contrast those groups when they're in the same pool as really large organizations that you know, are able to get lots of money and write grants in ways that uh, dwarf, in some ways, the capacities, the administrative capacities of these smaller groups? And how do we find equity there? Yeah, uh, let's really take that on. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in, in the, the dynamic here that's, that's, that started. Uh, thank you, Frank. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County with our December edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our topic is keeping arts and culture alive through COVID-19, a celebration of the recent award of $9 million by the Connecticut Office of the Arts to more than 150 arts organizations in Connecticut suffering from the impact of the pandemic, while also looking forward to what else needs to be done. With me are Elizabeth Shapiro, head of the Connecticut Office of the Arts, William Mitchell on the board of Connecticut Humanities, Senator Tony Huang, three recipients of this recent grant, Angie Durell, Executive Director of Intempo in Stamford, Lawrence Queso of the Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport, and Michael Barker, Managing Director of the Westport Country Playhouse. Rounding out our guests today are Jason Patlas, President and CEO of the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, and Kathy Mayer, Executive Director of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport. I want to talk to turn to Senator Huang. Now, Senator, you've been a really articulate supporter of the arts and culture industry now for a while, uh, understanding quite a bit about its ecology and infrastructure, and um, you're very aware of the hardship suffered by artists and organizations alike. And I'd, I would like to publicly credit you with suggesting this discussion. You felt this award of $9 million was certainly worth a, a press conference. So I'm interested in your thoughts about this grant program and the larger situation of arts and cultural organizations in the state. Absolutely. Thank you, David. I'm so appreciative of the Arts Alliance for being such a passionate voice for all of the arts and cultural institutions in the state. And and what a panel. And, and I want to give a special thank you to Liz um, for her tremendously effective advocacy on behalf of your organizations, um, but also Tremendous credit needs to be given to uh, DECD Commissioner David Lehman, who I've spoken to about this issue and understands that it is not only a artistic and cultural issue, it's an economic issue. And also to OPM Secretary McCall and ultimately Governor Lamont. The reason we say that is the Federal CARES grant is distributed to the states and the state governments has the authority to allocate those funds. And believe us, obviously, that, that there's tremendous needs everywhere. And there is a prioritization. And for 
that allocation, it is a reflection of, of the, the space that arts and culture holds in, in the minds because of Liz through the governor and, and OPM and, and, and DECD. So I, I really do want to uh, have a big shout out to the administration for their efforts on this. Um, when we talk about money for the arts, it is not a, 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 a feel good or, or it's a lifeline in these pandemics. And ultimately, when we think of nonprofits, particularly in the arts and cultural institutions, you are the very fabric of the community. Um, you, you represent so much of a part of the identity of what the state and, and the quality of life and the values that we have. And also the other important consideration that arts is a tremendous outlet. As Frank said in TikTok, I'm still not privy to TikTok, but uh, <laughs> what it does is we need arts and, and expression more than ever in these days of COVID pandemic isolation and social distancing. The arts and culture are such an integral part of making us connected. So it, it's a huge part. And, and I will close by saying this. It's not only this grant. We have also, to this administration's credit, having the insight to recognize that artists, many of them are self-employed. And our allocation of using and, and in some ways borrowing federal money to establish the, 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 the self-employed fund, the PUA fund in our Department of Labor is an integral part of keeping our artists who struggle already uh, afloat. Because the bottom line that I've learned from many of the leaders in nonprofit sectors and arts and culture is what may have taken decades to build upon, and sometimes we in the community take for granted, can be lost in a year and never come back. So not only is this from a standpoint of uh, government support, but this is also an appeal to, during the holiday seasons, to consider contributing and making donations to your worthwhile community nonprofits in the arts and cultures or any other venue. They need our support as citizens in a private sector more than ever. So when we're looking at uh, charity and we're looking at giving during these holiday seasons, think of our nonprofits. They have not had the normal revenue uh, fundraising that they have. So please consider uh, contributing and giving some part of it to our nonprofits they are an integral part. They're an extended part of our family. So, David, I want to thank you, but I also appreciate the opportunity to thank Liz and the entire advocacy um, to making this happen. It's it's not a feel good. It's a lifeline. And, and I think we have to do more. And I would implore our federal government to get off their uh, indecisiveness and allocate the funds that are necessary to keep our important institutions alive. Uh, so, and I also want to thank you, David, for recognizing not only the people that receive the money, but also the likes of Barnum Museum and Maritime that also needs our support down the line. And, and I hope that, uh, and I know that Liz is aware of that and we'll look at that down the road and, and we hope that they will be supported and given an extension of support as well. That's great. Thank you, Tony. And especially for addressing the fact that, um, arts funding, arts investment really is, uh, multi, level multi-part that um, state government is, is just a part and that probably even more important is private um, donations, especially at this time of year. So thank you.
so I'd like now to turn to the representatives of three of those 154 funded organizations. Uh, as I said, 40 of them in our own region of coastal Fairfield County, small, medium, and large. We have today one performing arts organization, one arts education organization, and one an interesting mixture of both. Um, let's start with the largest and arguably the most well-known performing arts institution in the county, the Westport Country Playhouse. And we're very pleased to have with us Michael Barker, its managing director. Michael, you have an operating budget of what, around $5 million? Yeah, five, 5.2 in, in a normal year, not this year. And you guys were smart enough in April to see the writing on the wall of COVID, announcing very early that you were canceling all performances and furloughing half your staff until April next year, and immediately created a survival fund and announcing that you, to survive, you needed to raise over one and a half million dollars. So that's quite a hole. Um, now, you received, I believe, the second largest amount from this particular batch, uh, over $350,000. Uh, so how is everything looking at this point? How much of a role does this grant play in ensuring your return in the spring? And uh, what, what does the picture look like? So thanks, David, for having me. Thanks for asking uh, some good questions. I also want to thank Senator Huang, particularly, uh, for his words about, you know, this is an invitation to participation. So so we did receive the sixth largest grant in, in the state um, from these DC, uh, these funds distributed by DECD. Uh, you know, the 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 hole left by the pandemic is larger than $1.6 million, which is the size of our survival fund. Uh, clearly, we had to relieve some people of their jobs, some of our colleagues that we uh, value and who are, you know, who are full participants in the playhouse's processes and operations. Uh, we have raised that money um, with, the, with, the, uh, with the grant from, uh, from the state. We were able to accomplish that amount of fundraising. We now face a year where we are gonna be trying to get back into production. And right. that requires more people, more, uh, more, more financing. Um, and it's, it's not so much that we're looking for, a, as, as I think the Senator said, a handout. It's that we are, an, we are an operating part of the local economy and of the arts infrastructure more broadly. So, uh, yeah, so it is an investment and it is an invitation to participate. Thank you. Um and Lawrence, Lawrence Queso, you've been executive director of the 80-year-old Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport for just six years. Is that right, Lawrence? Yes, it's been six years. And you've overseen a major turnaround of that institution. Uh, you're not a producing theater like the Playhouse, um, but now you're home to many resident companies and have an amazing free arts education program of your own. I remember... Uh, talking to you early in early in the spring when COVID was ha was beginning, and you were seriously worried that you might not survive, um, but you've managed to pull together a number of funding sources. Um, tell us something of your survival story over these last <laughs> nine months and how this grant, um, I think you got around sixty thousand dollars, will help. And and indeed it will help. Thank you, David, and uh, hi, all our other participants. Uh, 
Yes, how we sprung into action in the spring was uh, immediately uh, address the one thing we could control, which was our payroll. And so uh, we drew on the generosity and dedication of our staff to everybody uh, going off payroll for a considerable time and then coming back on a very reduced payroll. This grant will help uh, sustain that. We also initiated a challenge grant. Uh, our goal was $100,000, and I'm very pleased that uh, a couple of weeks ago we, we reached $106,000. So we've got our goal. That's great to hear. And that will get us going. And then um, we initiated some very small kinds of productions. Uh, we waited a long time until late summer, early fall, to do an outdoor concert series in our parking lot called Main Stage at the, at the uh, Klein. And we had four Saturdays, consecutive Saturdays, where we staged concerts. And I was very gratified to see the turnout we had. It's not that we made a lot of money on them, but it kept us visible and it did something for the public. They felt they needed that. And that's a lot of what we uh, are focused on now in any arts endeavor. You, th you think about two things. What does the audience want and what, does they, what do they need? Um, our resident companies have come back knowing full well that uh, they're not going to have uh, as many people who normally want their productions, but they're performing on some scale for the people who need it. Uh, this weekend, we've done uh, the 29th annual uh, Nutcracker by Academy of New England Ballet. The performers all wore masks. They rehearsed and even performed with complete social distancing. We had them, the whole cast spread out over the whole building so that they really didn't interact except for when on stage. And although um, they didn't get the 2,000 uh, audience members that they normally would, for those who felt they had a need to see the Nutcracker this holiday season, uh, kudos to the Academy of New England Ballet that they provided that. Uh, last week, Greater Bridgeport Symphony was in, and they recorded two concerts, their December and March concert, and they're going to issue them on DVD. The other thing we did in the fall, we were very grateful that uh, – a company called DNR Laboratories, which does a lot of uh, installations of technical equipment in theaters, and in fact had done all the technical upgrades in our theater two years ago, donated a live streaming system. And that's how we were able to do mm. the Nutcracker. Um, we live streamed it. And uh, interestingly, you, you saw people from Puerto Rico, California, Florida, Canada, all ordering tickets. So that was kind of interesting. Lawrence, uh, how did they know about that? Uh, was that was that something that you asked for? Um, in terms of live streaming? Yes. Yes. I, I've been talking for three years about my wish list was to get a live streaming system. And mm -hmm. um, now was the uh, perfect time. <laughs> DNR, the Donnie Gamsjager, who uh, who runs owns that company um, and is a supporter of Klein Theater Arts, our arts education program. Um, stepped up and he said, you know, I'd like to do this for you. Uh, the reason he supports our after school program was honestly, he said, I was in the AV club in high school. And if I hadn't, I wouldn't have the career I have now. Uh -huh. I love what you're doing with the school program. And I'd like to support you this way because I think it would really help. And Excellent. indeed it has. We last week also live streamed the fall concert for our, for Klein Theater Arts. We've kept Klein Theater Arts going 
uh, scaled down and social distanced, but we had a summer semester and we just concluded the fall semester um, the same way and, and live streamed that concert. So Lawrence, you, you financially are, would you say- We are financially or? optimistic. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about extinction. <laughs> I'm talking about the future. And uh, I think that uh, I've been very gratified by the support that our patrons and donors have made. I'm incredibly grateful of our staff and our board for all the efforts they've made. And uh, I'm, I, I think we're going to be in solid enough shape. Um, and the good news is whenever the restrictions get lifted, we have a calendar that is chock full of events of people who want to come to Klein and put on their shows. That's great to hear. Thank you, Lawrence. Um, now, Angie, uh, Angie Durell, you founded and run a comparatively small cross-cultural arts education organization in Stanford, in Tempo, that already has quite a vibrant international reputation, <laughs> offering free music and related education to underserved young people in the Stanford area. Uh, with a budget of what, around two, three hundred thousand? Three hundred, yeah. Three hundred thousand. Tell us something about Intempo and how you've managed to survive to date and where uh, your award fits in to your survival plan. Yes, uh, David, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to uh, be here representing Stanford, representing um, Lower Fairfield County. And thank you so much to the leadership of our Office of the Arts, um, Liz Shapiro and our governor. Um, our, our grant uh, from, the from the relief bill of $63,600 $63, has been our largest gift ever. Uh, we do not have an endowment. Uh, we do not have, uh, we only have one multi-year national funder. So for us, when the pandemic hit, unfortunately, we had to go to our budget and we never um, stopped paying our artists. That was something that I wanted to be fair and equitable to everyone. So we made cuts in every other department except the pay for our teaching artists and, and crucial staff. Um, it's difficult for Intempo because we serve the communities that have been most disproportionately affected by COVID-19. 98% of our students and families served are from Black and Latino communities. So we were at the same time that we were continuing to provide even more of our services and deploy all of our technology equipment to the families the next day after the schools closed, we were surveying our families and 75% of them were either unemployed or underemployed. So this was a moment that we were we were continuing to teach music education and uplift their cultural identity and language. But at the same time, our team was supporting them with food connections, rental connections, rent connections, and uh, uh, PPE equipment so that the families could go out and do their job. And I'm so thrilled that as a result of everyone's effort and to be a representative of Connecticut at all times, that we have not only stopped doing our program, we have increased our quality of our programming and we've brought in national partners like the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts to be a partner here uh, with, with Connecticut, with Stanford um, in Washington, DC. So- That's great, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, um, I did want to 
I need to take a break here. I'm sorry. If you just, if you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County with our December edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our topic is keeping arts and culture alive through COVID-19, a celebration of the recent award of $9 million by the Connecticut Office of the Arts to more than 150 arts organizations in Connecticut suffering from the impact of the pandemic, while also looking forward to what else needs to be done. With me are Liz Shapiro, head of the Connecticut Office of the Arts, William Mitchell on the Board of Connecticut Humanities, Senator Tony Huang, three recipients of this recent grant, Angie Durrell, Executive Director of Intempo in Stamford, Lawrence Queso of the Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport, and Michael Barker, Managing Director of the Westport Country Playhouse. Rounding out our guests are Jason Patlas, President and CEO of the Maritime Aquarium, and Kathy Mayer, Executive Director of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport. I did want to include the perspectives and stories of two other different kinds of cultural institutions, a history museum, the Barnum in Bridgeport, and a science center, the Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, both members of the Cultural Alliance. While both of these actually do quite a lot of programs that intersect with artists and arts groups, they generally wouldn't come within the funding pool of the Office of the Arts. Now let's start with the Barnum. Kathy, uh, you're almost chronically in survival mode, I think, <laughs> since you uh, survived and are rebuilding and reconstructing after a devastating tornado in 2010 and two hurricane, subsequent hurricanes. So what is a pandemic on top of that? Um, you know something, trauma is trauma. Yeah. It's a, a natural disaster or a global health emergency. Um, you shift into, as you said, survival mode to figure out the next step. So like I said this in the last call, not that I needed this to be on my obituary, but when we saw this happening, I don't want to say I knew what to do. I knew that there were going to be multiple uncertainties that we were going to have to think out. Um, I will say, I want to echo uh, what Tony said and humbly thank Liz and DECD and Humanities um, for everything that they have done to step up and be an amplified voice for this. Because unlike the tornado and Superstorm Sandy and all of that, we weren't alone. I wasn't the only one dog, you know, doing, doing, doing the dog paddle in the pool. We were all in this together and we continue to be in this together. And, um, and I am enormously grateful for my institution and for my own personal emotional health. <laughs> this, uh, you, we have been in this together emotionally and, and I'm enormously grateful to the legislators. So, um, so with that, we knew, um, when we saw this heading, first thing I had to do was deal with the numbers. And, and we've said that so many colleagues were trying to shift immediately into virtual platforms. I knew that was going to come. I needed to get my financial house in order and forecast constantly. What does this look like? Reach out to, to funders. And, and frankly, um, we're, our doors are open right now with the staff working because we did that. I don't, believe that we would have as much happening as far as extending programming on virtual platforms if 
we didn't grab hold of the numbers first and work with the state and be on innumerable Zoom conversations to figure out the next steps. So with that, um, what I know for the Barnum Museum right now uh, at year end, um, we have offered programming. We have been able to create a YouTube channel with multiple programs. It's getting traction, but I am seeing $164,000 loss as of right now, uh, based on the gap that we have not been able to um, earn in our income, whether it's at the gate, whether it's our memberships, whether it's our fundraising platform. So that's the window, um, you know, assuming all of the income, you know, funders who are reliable and ongoing, assuming all of they, uh, all of their funding comes in, Okay, no less than $164,000 or else I don't know what we're going to look like this time next year. And my guess is that a lot of organizations are going to be in very, very similar situations. Mm. So right now I can get us into 2021, but my head is already in 2022. You know, I, that's where I've got to bring, you know, my staff, that's where I got to bring my board of directors. And like, um, Lawrence, you were saying, it's wonderful. We've relied on the volunteership of, um, our digital media group, which is fantastic. How long can they continue to volunteer for the Barnum Museum? They have lives and, and things they have to do too. So I'll have to suspend that, you know, or it's not as, um, regimented in our programming platform. Because quite frankly, TikTok, love it. <laughs> but I can't manage that too with everything else that I'm doing. I mean, there's only so much, you know, three, you know, full-time staff people can do. So. Thank you, Kathy. Um, and lastly, the aquarium. Jason, you just took over as president and CEO of the aquarium just before the pandemic hit, I believe. And on top of that, you've had to manage the, the demolition of your IMAX screen, the largest in the state, as part of the replacement of the century-old walk railroad bridge next door to you in Norwalk. And while keeping all your animals alive and well, you've made a very effective shift to a lot of online education. So how are you managing financially and what more do you need in order to get everybody through to the summer? Everybody and all of your creatures uh, at the aquarium. Uh, thanks, David. And um, and um, it's uh, let me just say it's uh, it's an honor and uh, really a, a pleasure to join everybody on this call uh, to be welcomed into the arts and cultural community of um, of Fairfield County and the state, of course. And uh, and of course, a, re a rec you know, recognition to uh, Senator Huang, uh, the uh, state legislative representatives, the leadership of DECD and of course, the governor. The way the state has managed the pandemic um, initially with the health response and then with the support that all of our institutions are seeing uh, has been, um, you know, as uh, as uh, Senator Wong had said, a lifeline. Uh, we just don't offer a lifeline in what we do and what we offer the community. But the fact that the state has reciprocated as it has, has been uh, instrumental to our survival. Uh, I, I want to say a word. Um, you know, we talked a lot about. Uh, how arts and culture have been so paramount to the community, not just in our everyday lives, but particularly now when we've been so isolated and how we've seen artistic expression 
um, rise through TikTok, rise through Zoom conferences, virtual concerts. Uh, we partnered with the Norwalk Symphony Orchestra on one during the midst of the pandemic over the summer. The thing I want to add to that is when you think about your sources of inspiration for arts and cultural expression, it's so often the ocean. And that's the message that I want to underscore with the Maritime Aquarium. People think of us for our live animals. Uh, David, you mentioned what we need to do to keep them alive. I'll mention that in a moment. But it's for me, the aquarium is much more than uh, great exhibits of exotic biodiversity. It's building that connection that we have as a society, as an arts and cultural community to the ocean, which is one of our greatest sources of inspiration. Um, the, um, in answer to your question, five minutes in, let me get to that. Um, we have a triple threat that we've been dealing with, triple issues. The first is, as you said, um, the loss of, the loss of our visitors. Uh, it's been wonderful that we've been open. It's been wonderful that the governor has allowed us to stay open since the end of June. We've seen about 50% of our historic attendance come back over the summer. And um, we managed our budgets very conservatively for our fiscal year, which started in July. We've actually been above budget in what we're expecting to see, uh, even though it's 50 percent uh, lower than what we traditionally see. Uh, the idea that we may have to close as cases continue to spike would be devastating for us. Um, I've been able to bring my staff back. We've been working hard. Um, we've been the guests have been great. Everybody has been super in um, complying with and enforcing the protocols, wearing masks, the one-way flows, the contact lists, engagement that we have uh, in the aquarium. You know, we've been able to do that with uh, no more than one case of COVID in all of the six months that we've been open, which is quite remarkable, quite, quite remarkable. Um, so it's number one, the loss of uh, our visitors. Number two, as you mentioned, we still have to stay open for all of our animals, even for cultural institutions that don't have to bring their staff back, that don't have to worry about um, maintaining the life and, um, and support for 7,000 animals, which is what comprises our collection, 320 species, many of them big and well-known like the sharks and the seals and the turtles, but many of them endangered and threatened for which we have federal responsibilities to manage. My animal husbandry staff has had to stay uh, fully employed. Our life support systems have had to remain on throughout the closure. And so our operating costs, we've brought down a bit, but to a large extent, they are fixed. And that, that makes us very different than a lot of other um, cultural institutions that are feeling, you know, that are addressing the pandemic. The third issue, as you mentioned, even with that, we want to be true to our mission, and we've kept our education programs going strong. We pivoted very quickly from all of our in-person and in-classroom programs to make them all online in our first 10 days of closure back in March. And they've been a huge boon for us. They, we've seen a global audience across 45 states in the country and uh, four different continents around the world, and uh, that's been a real silver lining for us. Uh, but that means that I've had to keep my education team fully employed as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and so we're managing with, as what others have said on this call, a combination of state support, federal support and private support. 
And piecing together that jigsaw puzzle of dollars is really what it's all about these days. We just have one minute left. If anyone has any um, any wisdom to impart, anything that's come up to them during this program. David, it's Michael Barker with Westport Country Playhouse. Can I grab the mic? Of course. I've, I've been awed by everything that everyone has said on this call in terms of what has continued to happen. But I want to highlight what Kathy said. And that is that we're all looking ahead to 2021, to 2022 and beyond. And the gift that the state gave arts organizations in this period got us through, but we need partnerships with the government, with the government. We have a budget year this year and there are going to be a lot of people at the table, but the arts need to be there. Culture needs to be there. And I know that we have some allies uh, in Senator Huang and some others that will be supporting us as we move forward, but we're here for the long term, all of us. And it's going to take everybody in the pool uh, to stay that way. Very good. Thank Absolutely, you. David. If I may add, look, yeah. this panel, we're, we're all all in on this. Uh, but I hope in, in this radio program that we reach other people and to share with them that the arts and culture are an intrinsic part of our community. And sometimes we appreciate it. It really brings the quality of life that we have in our state but we sometimes take it for granted. And I repeat again that what may have taken years and years to have built that we sometimes take for granted, it may not be there tomorrow. And, and so it really is incumbent for us as a broader audience to fully understand, to support it, not just simply enjoying it, but you, you got to step up and support. Thank you very much for your words. And I trust that they will um, bring a response from our, from our audience. Thank you all for your participation today. I think this was a very valuable show and um, I will <laughs> wish you the best of luck to get through to 2022. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You've been listening to our December edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our topic has been keeping arts and culture alive through COVID-19, a celebration of the recent award of $9 million to 154 arts organizations in Connecticut by the Connecticut Office of the Arts. With me today were Elizabeth Shapiro, Connecticut Office of the Arts, William Mitchell, Connecticut Humanities, Senator Tony Huang, Angie Durell in Tempo in Stamford, Lawrence Queso, the Klein Auditorium in Bridgeport, Michael Barker, the Westport Country Playhouse, Jason Patlis, the Maritime Aquarium, and Kathy Mayer, the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport. If you missed part of this broadcast or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, January the 11th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture.